0: So Emily gave me this passage to read because she had faith in me that I would be able to pronounce all of the names correctly. No judgment. (laughs) Um, This is from Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 to 26. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said I have produced a man with Yahweh's help and again she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a herder of sheep, and Cain worked the ground. After some time passed, Cain brought from the fruit of the ground a gift to Yahweh. And Abel also brought some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And Yahweh took notice of Abel and his gift, but he took no notice of Cain and his gift. This kindled fierce anger in Cain, and his face fell into a scowl. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you inflamed, and why is your face scowling? Isn't it true that if you do what's good, you'll be lifted up? But if you don't do what's good, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, and you must gain mastery over it. Then Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's protector? But God responded, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So now you're being cursed from the very ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer give its strength to you. You'll be tossed out about and wandering in the earth. Then Cain said to Yahweh, my guilt is too great to bear, look. You're expelling, me from, you're expelling me today from the face of the ground, and I'll also be hidden from your face. I'll be tossed about and wandering in the earth, and anyone who meets me will kill me. But Yahweh said to him, No. That is why I said that anyone who kills Cain will suffer sevenfold vengeance. Then Yahweh put a sign on Cain so that no one who met him would strike him down. Then Cain went out from before the face of Yahweh and lived in the land of wandering east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was building a, Cain was building a city, and he named the city after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was father of Mahushel, and he was the father of Methushel, and he was the father of Lamech. Now, now Lamech took for himself two wives, one named Adah and the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, who was father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, who was father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also gave birth to Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice. Wives of Lamech, hear my words, for I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam again knew his wife, and she gave birth to a son and called his name Seth, saying, God has granted me another offspring in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son he named Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh.
1: I want to um, thank everyone who's here for braving the, the weather. We've had just this incredible cold snap, um, and I want to thank you for doing And And those of you who've been here for a while have had good reason maybe not to want to come. Um, because the last time we had a real cold snap, it was really cold in here as well. And, but we've managed to get it up to a little bit uh, warmer uh, this time, and so we're, we're okay. I'm uh, <clears throat> suffering as a bachelor right now with Sonia, my wife, being out in Denver with um, Alexandra and Kyle and with Violet and Rowan and having a great time. And I'm just, uh, uh, what can I do? What can I do uh, at home, so to speak? No, I'm getting along all right, but I do miss, miss uh, her and miss them uh, a lot and um, think about them a lot all the time. Um, I want also to um, thank uh, Emily for the privilege and the others of the staff for the privilege of last week being able to to participate in, in uh, leading the singing along with the rest of the praise team. And I want to especially thank Jason for just a beautiful uh, sermon that connected so well with things that we're, we've been talking about and, and um, my messages and I'm going to continue on <clears throat> talking about it and just so thoughtful and well well-framed and well-expressed and all of that. So I know he's downstairs. He can't hear me, but nevertheless, it's still I really am. am. grateful uh, to him uh, for that so many things going on in our world plus the individuals around us that need your prayers please keep all of those things in in your prayers as you um uh, day by day by day and uh, thank God so for that and especially thank Laura for reading our scripture which was a long one uh so well I want to say if you if you have not gotten a copy of the notes for the sermon today that look like this and have three holes on the side. Raise your hand and someone will, I hope, from the back will bring you one. You have to, may have to keep your hands up because there's quite a few that would like to get it um, and to um, have it today. Because of the long scripture, um, it's, I hope that you'll be able to look at it. If you, if you don't get one, well, look at one of the Bibles that's in, your, um, in the pew in front of you and you'll be able to uh, follow along, though. I had, have my own translation, of course, in, in, um, in this. Genesis, the fourth chapter, the um, first, uh, <laughs> all 26 verses of it. It's a rather remarkable passage that we know mostly from the first part of it the story of, of Cain and, uh, and Abel. And we're in a series reflecting on meeting God in everyday life. And one might think, well, the story of Cain and Abel is about as far from everyday life as one can get. But I, I hope, I don't know whether you will, but I hope that as we get through it, not that I'm going to make a big show of it by any means, but... <clears throat> but that you'll see that it is connected very much to everyday life of people back then and everyday life of us today and indeed it's part of a whole set of, of uh, stories in the in the beginning of Genesis that take that that very idea on it's something of what what, what a parable a story like that is is uh, all about that it, that it tells a narrative that is a, that one is able to generalize to some extent, or to in its specificity gives you the the, the points to connect to everyday life and and to understand it. It's uh, two weeks ago I talked about uh, Genesis one. Last week uh, Jason linked Genesis two to modern life and to artificial intelligence and all kinds of things. Um, like that, as we deal with with the both both the technology of our own day and also the perennial challenges of of our our lives. And chapter I, we're skipping over chapter two, sort of here, and going directly to chapter four of Genesis uh, because we looked at it less often. And uh, and it it too has this quality of connecting in various sorts of ways to to our lives. It's part. Of this whole section of Genesis, chapter one through eleven, and especially two through eleven, but one through eleven is 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 really, in a sense, a series of these parables, stories of human life that set the stage for the call of Abraham that's going to come down the line. The microphone seems to be a little loud. Does it seem loud to the rest of you? Um, it, maybe it could be turned down just a bit. It seems I hearing a little echo of myself in all of it. So. so I want you to think about Genesis 1 through 11. It's in Genesis 12 that we have the call of Abraham, and that becomes the turning point, the start of a new, new section of, of Scripture that goes actually all the way to the book of Revelation in many ways. But Genesis 1 through 11 is this series of stories of human life that set the stage for all that that comes before. Now, parables are complex, and they're important. At least they can be. They can also be just very, very simple. They can be a few words. But a lot of Jesus' best-known parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the, uh, the parable of the Prodigal Son and so many others, um, are, are fairly substantial uh, narratives that, that teach intensively, teach us, Something, but they do it by with a strange way. Uh, they do it with by. And I often like to think of it as using a phrase from that old movie, The Matrix, by planting a splinter in your mind. Something that you uh, can't quite make out, but it keeps bothering you, and you keep thinking about it, and you keep wondering about it, and gradually, perception comes, understanding comes, and uh, and so forth. They and so also like Jesus' parables are this way. So also, but in somewhat different way, these stories from Genesis, um, the first part of Genesis, are complex. They're important. They are parables, but they are not history in the ordinary sense of our word, or as we think of history. Parables that have these many twists and missing, and often missing elements that that challenge us to think about them, and they call us to reflection. They call us to reflect about a lot of different things. It's a, it's a strange world as one enters these stories, especially beginning in chapter 2 of Genesis and going all the way through to, through to chapter 11. Uh, you find so such remarkable events like the famous serpent of chapter 2, the talking snake that is there, or God taking an evening walk in a garden, and so on. You have, of course, the famous long generations where so many of the patriarchs through this, this, these sections lived to be nearly a thousand years, but never quite a thousand years, and, and so on. And even in our story that you heard uh, Laura read so beautifully, and you can look at it on your, on your sheet, Cain is, uh, is there, and as far as we've read in the book of Genesis so far... There is Adam and Eve, and then they have two children, Cain and Abel, and that's all we've heard about. And yet, as we read here in the story, Cain is afraid when he talks to God that many people are going to kill him. And uh, somehow he finds a wife, and he builds a city, and who's going to live in that city since there are only four people so far as we have in in the narrative? It's all of these kinds of things they're, uh, they're, they're there because they prick you they, they, they're unexpected they're missing elements. They challenge you to think further, think about it yourself about all of these things. you, you get a kind of, of license to fill in the blanks if you will and and to think about what are these twists and turns and missing elements as you as we go into it. We um, as you look at the beginning of the book of Genesis, those the chapter that I spoke on t- two weeks ago, uh, chapter one and chapter two, uh, they are two creation stories side by side. And uh, they they challenge us to think about all of that, how we think of God creating the world. And it's two very different, different orders of, of events and all of that. These, I believe, and this is just my best understanding, not just things that I've come up with on my own, but my best understanding from thinking about these that these are really ancient, ancient traditions, but that have been shaped and told in Israel in a time of crisis. Most specifically, probably, uh, and I don't know exactly when these would have been written down for the first time, but in the time of the Babylonian exile, it's when they are all put together as scripture in in a book like Genesis. And uh, it's a time of crisis for Israel because they've lost the temple, they've lost their homeland, the people that are in that exile who are the lead, all the leaders of the whole of the nation and um, in all kinds of different fields, they're realizing that they cannot count on any of the ordinary things that had structured life, that, that the kingship, the, the, the whole kingdom, and the, the power, making the laws, and all of those kinds of things that they, they took, took for granted, of having a homeland, of being able to defend their city, And their temple and all of these things All of that's been knocked down by Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon He's destroyed the temple He's taken all of the things The temple is in ruins There's no more any sacrifices going on to God And people are wondering what they are to make of it Is this somehow part of what God is doing? <clears throat> yes, some of the prophets had said that this was going to happen, but they seemed like traitors because they were speaking against God's people. They were saying things that were, seemed to be against the temple. And so people like Jeremiah were just <clears throat> imprisoned sometimes. Sometimes people were scared of him because they were afraid of doing something to a prophet and so on. But they now are brought face to face with it and they have to understand who is this God that we are? Dealing with Who is the God who has been with us all this time And yet who brings about our crisis Because of our faithlessness That they learn to express so forcefully How is it that he is creator of everything in the world And yet chooses to use one people The story of Abraham and all of his descendants, Israel, as a people belonging to him. And he does it, as he says to Abraham, to bring blessing to the whole world. And that that by him and in his seed all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed. How is it that God deals with human brokenness and sinfulness and alienation and exile like we are experiencing right right now <clears throat> excuse me and so in this this these first 11 chapters there are four major stories that the people were mostly aware of if you're aware of genesis very much at all and then some sort of connective genealogies that link them link them together in genesis 2 and 3 you have the second creation story and then the story of the garden of eden that and the, the planting of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life this is clearly a different world than what we live in right now something strange and as we've already talked about there's this talking serpent and there's a curse on the ground through the serpent there is then exile from Eden Eden means delight from the garden of delight they are exiled and they enter the wor- a world of mixed things mixed life, good and bad Because this person who evidently didn't know or hadn't eaten yet of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so one might question whether she knows good and evil gets talked into seeing the tree in a different way than she's seen it before. She's always stayed away from it completely and she is told that it brings wisdom. And she sees that it's beautiful, and she knows that God has planted it there, and so on. And so she eats, and he eats, and they enter this this state of knowing, not their connectedness to them, to each other, and to God, but to knowing their vulnerability and their fear. And at the same time, at the end of the story in Genesis three, God says. They have become like us. God says this, knowing good and evil. Then the story comes next, the story that we're dealing with more today, where things go drastically wrong in Genesis 4. Abel, Cain kills Abel, and Cain then is, is uh, sent out to wander the earth, exile again. They were exiled from Eden. He's exiled from, God, from the ground and exiled from all the people around him and everything and he's also a builder though too and so dealing with that this mixed character of his his life Genesis 5 is 10 generations boom 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 down the line 10 generations that move from Adam down to the time of Noah and then we have in chapters 6 through 9 the, 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 the flood and everything, it's like there's this tremendous violence and corruption in the world and God is going to destroy it and it's like a out, you know it destroys it with a flood saves eight people and two of all the animals and seven of some of the animals and all of that but at the end of it God pronounces the verdict no it really it really didn't do the job it, the, the heart of the human being is still evil and continually and I will never ever do that again so it's almost like a first try so to speak To deal with evil that had set out. But now it lays the groundwork for God choosing this long way that he does when he comes to to Abram. And begins with one person. And it's the whole story of the Bible that unfolds differently. But after the story of the flood in 6 through 9 we have in chapter 10 the generations after the flood. And we get down to the time of uh, nearly the time of Noah. I'm sorry, not nearly the time of Abraham, Abram, as he's known for at first. And we have the story of the Tower of Babel. Everybody's still together. Everybody's talking the same language. Everybody's wanting to, to build something great. And so they build this brick monument. that, And they don't even have mortar to hold the bricks together. They have to use bitumen. And they put these mud bricks and this bitumen. And God looks, has to come way, way down to even see their mighty work. And he says, ah. Oh. They were supposed to increase and multiply and populate the earth. Let's help them along. And so they suddenly start speaking different languages and they go out and populate the earth and spread humanity all over. And then when that situation finally gets to some semblance of the way in which the earth is, then then comes the call of Abraham. And he sets out on a journey, a journey that's going to go. But still, that problem is there all the way along. What about the, the brokenness of human beings? How is that going to be faced? How is it going to be dealt with? And, of course, I'm going to give you the complete answer to that this morning in, in what, we, what we say here. So each of these narratives is remarkable and each one is surprising when they are followed closely a lot of times you just sort of read over them but they have all kinds of surprises for example if you if you know what Genesis 3 is all about the Garden of Eden story if you know about it from theology you know that it's about sin it's about the fall that's the term for the sin and it's about Satan tempting Eve and and the the people wanting to be like God and striving to be like God, and then you know, everything goes, goes wrong. But when you read the story, you realize that it's not any mention of sin in, in chapter 3, nor is there any mention of Satan in chapter 3 at all. In fact, this, the serpent is simply described as one of God's creatures that he had, had made. And there's no description of the fall. In fact, it's in our story today, in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, on your sheet there, That the the word sin occurs for the first time in, in the scriptures, the first time in Genesis And as one looks at this story of Cain and Abel that we have before us There's a lot there, there's many interesting details It's a fascinating story that's had a lot of thought and discussion Cain, for example, what does Cain's name mean? Cain's name, well, it's not really too too, terribly sure, but basically, I think, means spear. It also has resonances with words that mean like a smith, a blacksmith, and things like that, like we'll see in Tubal Cain and so forth. But spear. And what does Abel's name mean? Well, Abel's name comes up again in Ecclesiastes a lot, but there it's usually translated vanity of vanities. It means actually vapor. It means appropriate how was it that Eve knew to name Abel vapor and Cain spear mm-hmm. much is omitted though in the story much that oh as I've taught this in the past I want to know and everybody wants to know when we talk about it a lot of the things that are omitted are around the question why like even just from the start, Cain and Abel bring gifts to Yahweh. Cain brings the, from the fruit of the ground that he tills the ground. Why does he do it? There's not any statement that God says, I want you to bring an offering to me. Abel brings from his flocks, but there's nothing to say that. It's not, we're not even told that they offer them as sacrifices, as we would think. We're, they just bring them as gifts. Why do they bring them? And then, especially, why does God favor Abel's? Or Favor is not really the right word. That's sort of the word that I automatically know. It's, what it says in Hebrew is he looked at it. He took note of it. He looked at Abel's gift, and he didn't look at Cain's gift. He looked at Abel and his gift, and he didn't look at Cain and his gift. Why? Is there some deep moral difference between the two? What is it about able? Almost the same words are used about the two of them bringing. Is it just arbitrary? Is it justified? That's one of those things you can ask all you want to. I will never be able to give you an answer, nor will anybody else. Others may tell you that they know. You may draw on later scriptures that, certainly engage in some of this reflection about it. But as far as the narrative in in Genesis 4, it just simply does not say, but we want to know why. Cain wants to know, that's for sure. Cain, and we don't, another one of those whys or hows is, how do they even know that God looks at one and not the other? doesn't tell us any of that. All of that is left as as space for reflection, I guess we might say. We'd love to have answered our questions. But clearly Cain feels that there is an injustice. That reflects our human situation. We all have a great sensitivity toward injustice against ourselves. Unfairness of any sort against ourselves. Just look at kids. And the way that they deal with it. If, if something is not fair to me, then, and that's the way Cain is, he blazes with anger as <clears throat> as all of this uh, is there. Ver, notice in verse middle of verse 4 and on into uh, verse 5. A, Yahweh took notice of Abel and of his gift, but he took no notice of Cain and his gift. This kindled fierce anger in Cain, and his, and his face fell into a scowl. It's just so unfair. And God comes and talks to Cain in the story, but God does not explain. Wouldn't any good parent, person, boss, whatever one says, explain? Well, listen, Cain. This is my standard of judgment. These were the things that I was checking for merit on. And you did this and this. But Cain did those two plus seven more. And so his was the better offering and you didn't. God does not do any of that. He does. He simply comes, but he doesn't explain. He simply urges him to do good. Now, just think about that. This is how as they reflected on God and saw God, they were people who were thinking so much about the law of God. And There's going to be a lot in, all, in both Genesis, Exodus, Ephesians, Numbers, Deuteronomy, about the law of God. But here they're just talking about God in relationship to a human being. And, and God doesn't explain. He doesn't guide, tell him what to do. He just says, do good. Verse 7. Isn't it true that if you do what's good, you'll be lifted up? But if you don't do what's good, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you. And you must gain mastery over it.
0: Ooh.
1: Cain has this anger but God just simply says it's—it's it's not. At least He seems to say it's—it's it's nothing disastrous has happened for you to be so angry. Simply go forward. Do what's good. Do what's right. And you'll be lifted up. But if you don't do what's good, and He uses the very same word again, then that anger evidently that he's talking about or something like that is an opening for sin and that's the very first time the word sin is used in the bible and again notice the way it's used sin is crouching at the door what does that bring to your mind what do you think of when you think of something crouching at the door well to me it eh, i don't know what my fears are but uh, Something pouncing on you. I guess in my experience it would be a raccoon, maybe, or something. But I think maybe more a lion or something, something a little bit fe- more fearsome and fierce, or uh, you know, whatever it could be. Whatever one's fears are, it's crouching there, through. but it's alive. It's personified, even more than just a, a lion or something like that crouching. It's a live predator who wants you. His desire is to have you. And so that idea that there is this this danger, not a battle really, a danger from this personified predator that is there. And as of course you have heard the story here, Cain does not master it. Cain does not even master himself. He doesn't master his own anger and just as God said that anger is the opening for sin or whatever he does that is bad whatever he does does not do that's good is the opening for sin and sin attacks the way we're told that is not by saying oh sin attacked him and he had a great struggle with sin no it's just Cain asked his brother to go out into the field or something like that. He just, all it really says is he just talked to his brother and then they were out in the field. And then he killed him. Just as simple as that. You don't have to dramatize it too much. Cain spoke to his brother Abel and when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. That battle or that danger from, from this, you can hear it reflected if you think about it in passages in the New Testament. I, I think about the role that anger, why are you blazing with anger in this? Is when you think about some of Jesus' teaching, the very first of his contrasts between his own, his own teaching and the law. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Cain goes, ah, did that, okay. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, uh uh-oh, that's also there, will be liable to judgment. Whoever says to his brother, idiot, will be liable to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, fool, will be liable to the Gehenna of fire. So when you are offering your guilt, your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Don't go ahead and offer it. Just bring it there. It's not yet a gift. Just first do what really matters. First be reconciled to your brother or sister. And then come and offer your gift. And that idea of sin as a predator or as a personification is something that one also hears echoed in Paul Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter seven, verses seven through eleven. I would not I would not have known desire or coveting, he says, if the law had not said, "You shall not desire" or "You shall not covet." But sin, taking a starting point through the commandment, worked in me all kinds of desire. Mm, that's easy to do in our day and age. For apart from law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, taking a starting point through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. That challenge is already right here in the beginning of the of the Bible in, in the story of Cain and his his what happens with him. Cain, in response to all of this, is as God challenges him as God calls him to be aware of that sin and to do what's good, I suppose uh, uh, supposing that, that that Cain will know what is good. Cain questions his own responsibility for his brother. You see the passage there in, in um, well I just read part of it in verse eight on down uh, yeah it's just and, and nine there. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, they were on close speaking terms, it sounds like. Where where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's protector? Everybody knows it really says am I my brother's keeper, but... Keeper is just another word for, keeper a, keeps a goal in soccer. So anyway, am I my brother's protector? Am I the one that's responsible for him? I'm keeping the land. I'm farming the fields. He's out with his flocks. I'm, I, I'm not responsible for him. This question, who is my brother that I'm responsible for? Who is my neighbor that I'm responsible for? Who is the least of these, to use Jesus' phrase? Who embodies God's presence? Who is the enemy that I'm supposed to love? Here it sets out that question that runs all the way through, and. And still is a challenging question when Jesus takes it up or when Paul writes about it. Who is the neighbor? Who is my brother? And, of course, we know the stories like of the Good Samaritan and all of that, the challenge of of seeing someone in need and making them, taking the responsibility and making them your neighbor. But Cain doesn't want to go there, doesn't want to see that. Jesus, in Matthew 25, when he talks about the, the judgment, talks about People from all the nations, and some of them are on the right hand and some are on the left, and those on the right hand, they have seen somebody in need. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was sick and in prison, and you clothed me. I was <clears throat> I was in prison, and you came to me, and so on down the line. They found those that were in need and helped them. That was something that Jesus taught about again and again. It echoes straight from this into The daily life of every person. How do I look at the world? How do I look at people all around me? Not just the person that's lying, laid out, lame and broken and homeless or whatever, but all sorts of situations of need. How does he know who his brother is? He has broken the relationship between himself and this one who is indeed his brother well it's gone about as bad as it can go he doesn't he doesn't only not own up to it but he tries to duck the very responsibility but then god responds verse 10 what have you done it's not as though god doesn't know the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground so now you're being cursed from the very ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. What should happen next? Well, if you read the law of Moses, if you read our own practice, if he's condemned of murder, what do you do? You execute him, don't you? It's absolutely required by the law of Moses. If a person is known to have murdered premeditatedly someone, they are to be executed. Even if they're hanging on to God's altar, they take them away from the altar and turn them over to the next of kin and they are given the right to kill that person. That's what's there. That's the long tradition that the people know and so you'd think that they had figure out a way of having God to enforce that. But God doesn't. That's sort of the surprise here. The blood cries out. The law requires it. But God doesn't. God doesn't. Instead of executing Cain, he exiles him. He says, you've lost your rights to the ground, so to speak, as a farmer. It's not gonna work for you anymore. You're going to have to wander the earth. You're going to be tossed and turned every which way. Your relationships are going to be broken. There's consequences from your relationship with your mother and father and anybody else and with me from my face. But oh my, it's so much less than getting killed. But Cain says, oh no, it's too much. It's too much. I don't have any ground. I don't have any land. I don't have any protection. People kill me. I don't have my family around me to protect me. And astonishingly, God is gracious to him God protects him with a sign it's that famous mark of Cain Cain says my guilt is too great to bear look you're expelling me today from the face of the ground and I'll also be hidden from your face he doesn't even mention there to be away from the face of Adam and Eve I'll be tossed about and wandering in the earth and anyone who meets me will kill me Yahweh said to him, no, that's why I say that anyone who kills Cain will suffer sevenfold vengeance. This vengeance, this revenge, this retribution is not to be taken. And if it is taken, then it brings about worse things. Then Yahweh put a sign on Cain, some sort of thing. You can speculate all you want about what it is and you will not get any further than that word sign. On Cain, so that no one who met him would strike him down. Then Cain went out from the face of Yahweh and lived in the land of the land of Nod, as it is in the King James Version, the land of wandering. That's what the word nod means, east of Eden. God opens up a future for Cain. He protects him with a sign. He through that sign he stays with the murderer to protect his life even in exile because and everywhere wherever he may go is still God's creation god our text is saying is more gracious than the law of moses that that was given at a later time and that the people who were per- first putting this down to be part of scripture are no, no with all their hearts god opens this future for Cain those who are not in god's story that is the story of abraham are still gods it reminds me so much of a passage that i put there on the on the back side of your sheet acts 14:15 through 18 when paul is in danger in a in a town called lystra and he uh, there well He's in a certain kind of danger. He and Barnabas have healed someone, and everybody's ready to offer sacrifices to them as Zeus and Hermes there. And Paul, both of them tear their clothes and run toward them to try to stop them from doing that. They don't want somebody offering sacrifices to them. But this is what Paul says People, why are you doing these things? We're humans with feelings just like yours. We are announcing good news so that you can turn from these empty things and turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things in them. Now, in generations past, he permitted all nations to go along their own paths. Yet he never left himself without things that testify to him, without a witness. Since he brought about good things, by giving you rains from heaven and seasons that produce fruit in order to fill your hearts. These people that, well, they're, they're, they're so this way and that that here they're trying to offer a sacrifice to Paul and a little bit later they're going to try to stone him to death. But this is what God thinks of you. He wants to fill your hearts with food and gladness. Now, by saying these things with great difficulty, they stop the crowd from sacrificing to them. And so there's this vision of God who still is with the whole world, even the exile, the wandering places, and protecting even the one who has done wrong because nothing is ever totally final with God's grace. So then as one comes to the end of this, uh, this passage here in verse 17, and so before telling Abraham's ancestors, the parable tells us of Cain and his family. Cain goes off wandering, but he evidently has already, from where? That's one of those missing things, a wife, and then he has a son who's named Enoch, now Cain is off the land. He's not a farmer. So what do you do when you're not a farmer? You build a city. But who's going to live in the city that you build if there are not lots of people around? And the city is called after his son. It's called Enoch, and is the as you read through the text there, who, seven generations unfold, and you have these uh, wonderful names of um, of. of right down to well some of them that I don't even want to try to pronounce and so forth Methushael and and, and, and mahujael and all of these things like that but it's right on down to a man named Lamech. and Lamak turns a little corner by taking by taking two wives and uh, we watch as that his these people unfold their lives unfold it's been seven Six generations, I guess, when by the time you get to Lamech, maybe five or six generations. And you get to Lamech, he takes two wives, Ada and Zillah. Ada gives birth to Jabal, who was, and this is just the strangest little thing, who was father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Hmm. How do you be father? Well, sort of the ancestor, I guess, of those. At least of a, of a tribe or something like that, but it's, it's given as though it were kind of a generic thing of humankind. <clears throat> who do we most prominently know in Genesis who lived in tents and raised livestock? It's Abram. Abraham that lives in tents and raises livestock. He has a brother named Jubal, <clears throat> and he's the father of everybody who plays stringed instruments and pipes. You didn't know if you're one of our many musicians that you were a a child of Jubal, but there there you are. Who do we know in the scriptures that really plays instruments and pipes? Well, one of the best known would be David. uh, uh, Abraham, David, these are people who seem to be connected somehow here, at least in their, their lives with this, these structures of society and of culture That Cain's The murderers Unfolding Brought about God's grace Was never at an end His other wife gave birth To Tubal Cain Cain here in the sense of Smith So it's Tubal the blacksmith Basically Who forged all kinds of tools Of bronze and iron Well down even in the time of King Saul the Israelites didn't know how to forge iron they had no access to iron but here all the way back you have someone who starts the line of this craft of this technology and Tubal Cain's sister was Nama and Lamech who likes his family I guess quite a lot he hands down the tradition of Cain but he's He doesn't know that grace of God that has given him his life. He only knows the story of Cain mm, killing and then having protection of multiple uh, multiple vengeances, so to speak. And so he has this little poem that he evidently likes to sing to his wives. and Zillah, listen to my voice. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. For I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. That's the way I'm going to be like Cain. So if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech seventy sevenfold. I won't go into all of that. You can. The violence, the use of the story for your own uses, and so forth. It brings that story to an end both with the good and the bad, the mixed that God is there with all the peoples of God's world. And so the chapter closes then with the birth of Seth, a new line of descendants that moves toward Noah, a new opening to Yahweh. And it says there at the very end, at that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh, which is really quite remarkable in that chapter because right at the very beginning, Eve called the name of Yahweh I have gotten a son or I've I've produced a man with Yahweh's help but people began to call on Yahweh in a more focused way evidently or something like that it's like the chapter started and it goes, life goes on God shares in the lives of these human beings and we watch it unfold now, in the next chapter, we, we follow a different line. We follow Seth's line and it takes a different thing, uh, to turn and it goes down toward Abraham. But this passage, you think about those people sitting in exile and reading their traditions, telling their traditions to each other and thinking about how they reflect who God is. They don't try to make him an enforcer of the laws, but something... They want to see him, they know him, to be gracious even in their exile, even in their guilt. And so they show how that can be misused with Lamech. But they want to trust in this God who is there wandering with them even in Babylon and hoping for that never-ending grace of God. And so the parable is given, we stew over it, we think about it, we try to understand it, but it keeps coming back to bring us to see God in a different way than we might have seen him ever before. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all that you show us about yourself in all the different ways through the scriptures. Sometimes there are puzzles and we don't understand. Sometimes it seems to be just too clear for us and we don't understand. We know that you are beyond our conception and yet you choose to interact with us. As these accounts make so clear. Interacting with our brokenness and with our hopes. Even pushing us into hope when we are dead set against it. Help us, Heavenly Father, that we may live in that grace that you give us that we may understand the dangers of our lives as you taught us to pray to you lead us not into into temptation but deliver us from the evil one but at the same time father we know that your kingdom your reality your rule is has been has always been breaking into our world And we pray that we may live in that presence that you are. Knowing that even if we turn our face away from you, you are always there to call us back. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Would you stand for a word of benediction? My favorite benediction of all time, I think for a lot of people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Greet one another and go forth to serve.